Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. A couple weeks ago, I had the chance to go to a church planting conference and spend some time hanging out with Cindy Jones from Covenant Catalyst, or, yeah, Catalyst Covenant Church. There you go. And Wiper Lake, Minnesota, launched a couple months ago. And with Robert Kahn, who's launching Arrows Church in Omaha on Easter. And it was super fun to be able to spend time with these church planters who we, as a community, have given coaching and funding and a whole lot more to in order to help them start new churches that will reach new people in new ways. If this is your first time at Revision, your first time watching online, or you haven't been around for very long, you may not be aware of this, but we give a portion of every dollar that comes in to starting new churches, because we are not here to build a big old Revision church. We're here to help as many people as possible meet Jesus and follow him fully, and we can't do that on our own, and that's exactly what these church planners are all about. And so I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for participating in that, for being a part of what God is doing in and through these brand new churches. So I was at this conference for a few days. I got home late on a Thursday night. And sure enough, first thing Friday morning when my kids saw me, they ran up and gave me giant hugs and asked, what'd you bring us? I'm pretty sure the hugs were just to butter me up for that question. But sometimes as a parent, you take what you can get. And I told them, oh, I brought you me. I'm back. And they said, yay, daddy, that's all we really wanted. And we held hands for a prayer time and scripture reading. Or something like that. I may be misremembering the details a little, but I do remember I learned that day that I am less exciting than a poppet. So I've been dealing with that for the last couple weeks. But I think all of us can relate to that experience as parents or as a kid growing up, having someone walk through the door and hoping they brought you something cool. And most of us have had a similar experience in our faith journey as well. We've wished and even prayed for God to give us something great. But the thing about God is he doesn't always give us what we hoped for or what we expected because he just isn't concerned about the same things we are concerned about, which honestly is a huge pain in the neck sometimes. This morning, we're in week four of this series we've been in called When Pigs Fly, where we're taking a look at these seven incredible, outrageous, unbelievable miracles Jesus performs in the book of John. And John, if you'll remember, doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because in his eyewitness account, he wants us to understand that all of these things Jesus did are not just a demonstration of his power. They're not just parlor tricks. They're a declaration of his identity. They're meant to point us to who he is and what he's all about in the world. And John tells us at the very end, he tips his hand, he said, I've written all this down that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you could have life in his name. John wants us to see what he's seen and hear what he's heard so that we would believe what he believes, that Jesus is all he said he was, which changes everything for us. But the problem is it just doesn't change everything in a peaceful or comfortable direction. Because Jesus doesn't always care about the stuff that we 
care about. And if we're supposed to care about what he cares about and not care about the things he doesn't care about, then that's kind of stinky sometimes because he just isn't concerned with a lot of the things I have come to believe are really important, like comfort, for instance. I don't know about you guys, but I tend to bend my life toward comfort at every possible opportunity I get. Like two days ago, for instance, my family's out of town visiting grandparents, and we had all been on a trip together before that. So I got home, and there wasn't a lot of food left at the house. So I went to Hy-Vee, and I got to admit that as I was checking out, this thought entered my brain. I am so thankful that self-checkout is a thing now. And it's not because I'm terrified to talk to the checkers or it would be crippling for me. It's just because I didn't want anybody to ask me as a middle-aged man whether the case of Mountain Dew, the two bags of Puffy Cheetos, and the box of Fruity Pebbles I bought were for my kids because they were not at all. They were for me. It's what I felt like eating. I get real into health food when Jenny is not in town. And anyways, there was a sale on the Cheetos, so I didn't want to lose money on the whole deal, Okay. But I'm an extrovert. I, I could talk to the people who are checking me out at IV. It's just easier and a little bit more comfortable not to. Kind of like it's easier and a little bit more comfortable sometimes to send people to voicemail, read what gets transcribed, and then text them back. And I guarantee you I'm not the only person in this room who's done that recently. And those are low stakes kind of things. But if I'm being honest with you guys, even in high stakes kind of things, even in significant situations, I tend to bend my life toward comfort. I do not like having hard conversations. I don't like calling people out. I don't like telling people the whole truth. I don't like telling them where they need to improve because it's uncomfortable and sometimes they're really mad at me afterwards. But I know that difficult conversations is part of God's call upon my life. It's part of leadership. It's what it looks like to live out a spiritual gift of discernment. It's what it means for me to be faithful. And I also know they're usually helpful. I've had so many mentors tell me, I've read so many books, I've seen it up close and personal so many times. Almost everyone is one difficult conversation away from a breakthrough in some area of their lives. I know that it's helpful, and yet I don't want to initiate it because I'm selfish. It's uncomfortable, and I don't want to be uncomfortable. But over the course of my life, I've found that the more I attempt to maximize my comfort, the more I minimize my opportunity to see God move in big ways in and through my life because a whole lot of the amazing things God does in our world happen outside of our comfort zone. And that's what we're going to discover this morning as we look at the, the fourth crazy, amazing, when pigs fly sign Jesus performed in the book of John. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of John. Chapter six is about three quarters of the way through the book. If you don't have one, no worries. You can follow along on the screen or in the revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, please snag one from the next steps table before you go today. They're free and they're our gift to you. Today we're going to look at a miracle that is maybe Jesus' most famous miracle outside of the resurrection. It's actually the only miracle outside of the resurrection that all four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life that we call the Gospels include. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all decided to write about this moment, which is cool for a couple reasons. First, it's a pretty significant hint to us that this is a powerful picture of who Jesus is and what that means for you and me. And second, it's a pretty powerful piece of evidence that this actually happened. 
Four guys wrote down that 10 to 20,000 eyewitnesses watched this happen, which means if it didn't actually happen, the Bible would have never gotten off the ground in the first century. The church would have never gotten off the ground in the first century. It could have been immediately disproven. And there are a whole lot of people in our world today that want to explain away Jesus and want to explain away some of the incredible things that he did. And whether you choose to believe that he is who he said he was, that he is God or not, is up to you. But whether he did or didn't do these things really isn't the only logical conclusion we can make because so many people were still alive when this got written down is that the people who saw it testified to it. This happened. This is what we read in John chapter 6. It says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. All right, a couple things. First, John says that he was on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Far from what? Like, what's the reference point that that's the far shore? Well, the reference point is Israel. He was on the shore that was opposite Jewish territory. And in this place, there weren't a whole lot of Jews who lived. There were a whole bunch of Gentiles who lived, which is why John uses both names for it, Sea of Galilee and Sea of Tiberias, which was what the Romans called it, to emphasize the Roman nature of this region Jesus took people to. It was filled with people the Jews called Gentiles. And we got to understand this. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we see Jew and Gentile as a religious division. Like the Jews believed this and the Gentiles believed other things. But for the Jews, primarily in the first century, it was a racial division. So right off the bat in this story, Jesus has taken people to a racial fault line, which was incredibly uncomfortable for the Jewish people, but Jesus was about racial reconciliation. He was about connecting all of the people in the world that he created in his own image to one another, which means if we're going to be passionate about the stuff Jesus was passionate about, racial reconciliation is unequivocally on the docket. So Jesus takes everybody to this place that is demographically uncomfortable for the Jews because a whole bunch of people live there that they saw as other and inferior. But Jesus is less concerned with their comfort than he is with his mission to connect all the world to himself. This place is also geographically uncomfortable because it's this arid desert region where nothing really grew, it was underdeveloped, not a whole lot going on. And yet a whole crowd of people followed Jesus out there. And you got to wonder why. This wasn't a place they were comfortable going. This wasn't a place anyone really liked going. And a whole bunch of Jews went there because Jesus was there. And John tells us why they went. He says it's because they had seen the signs that he was performing and they wanted to see more. They were enjoying the magic show. And guess what? They were about to see an even bigger show than they'd ever seen before. Maybe his craziest, coolest miracle yet. And I read that and I think for, for us, like for you and me, how many of us would like to see Jesus do something miraculous? How many of us would like to see Jesus do something incredible in our lives? 
Maybe someone out there is like, oh, I'm good. But I'm guessing it's close to 100%. It'd be so awesome if Jesus showed up and did something great. But I think, do I want to see it is the easy question. That was a simple one to answer. The harder question is, how willing am I to go to uncomfortable places in order to see Jesus do something incredible? Because a whole lot of the amazing stuff God does in our world happens in places that are outside of our comfort zone. Some of the best moments of my life have happened in sweaty, hot, tiny little rooms where I had to eat food that I did not want to eat because I'm a picky eater and I had to talk through a translator because I didn't know the language. But I have watched people in bondage set free. I've watched them weep at the beauty they found in Jesus Christ, even in the middle of my own personal discomfort. And this is a lesson I've learned in almost every space I have ever occupied in my life. I've learned it in Haiti and in Mexico and Chicago and Des Moines, and I hope all of us learn it. Maximizing my comfort means minimizing my capacity. Maximizing my comfort minimizes my capacity to see God move and to watch God work through me. I think God does so many cool things beyond the boundaries of our comfort and our unwillingness to be uncomfortable cuts us off from experiencing them. So Jesus, he heads out to this wilderness spot and a whole bunch of people follow which is a particularly ridiculous thing to do because the Passover was near. We read that little line in verse four and we kind of skip right over it like, okay, cool. But Passover was actually a time when Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem, not away from Jerusalem. And so it's ridiculous that anyone's following him out to the wilderness, but it's 100% intentional and it's really cool. The Passover, in case you're unfamiliar, was this festival that the Jews celebrated every year in remembrance of God liberating them from four centuries of slavery and oppression in Egypt. They cried out, he showed up, he demonstrated his power, and then he plucked them out of this Gentile land and sent them into the wilderness. And then he took them across the wilderness to the promised land he had for them. And while they were out there in the wilderness, there was no food, nothing grew or lived out there. And so God fed them with daily bread called manna. Every morning they woke up and somehow, some way there was this manna, it means what is it? They didn't know what it was, but it was on the ground just enough to eat that day. Fast forward a couple thousand years and right in the moment while the Israelites are remembering this and celebrating this, Jesus does the exact opposite thing. He actually takes them out of the Jewish land into the wilderness to the cusp of Gentile land and he's about to feed them bread. He reverse engineers the Passover at Passover in order to communicate to everybody watching that he is the God who provided the manna. He's the one who can create something out of nothing. Make no mistake, this was a bold claim to everybody following him that he was the Messiah, that he was God with us in the flesh. And it was also a reminder to them that no matter what's going on in our lives, Jesus provides. Every time, wherever we are, even if it feels like a desert space where nothing good could happen, Jesus provides. 
And so before Jesus has even done anything cool or miraculous or out of the ordinary, he's already communicated some incredible truths about who he is and what he's all about to everyone who's following him. But then he cranks it up to 11 because he's Jesus and that's what Jesus does. Verse 5 says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Phil, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I love this so much. Jesus wasn't even looking for an answer. He knew exactly what he was doing when he led the disciples out of Jerusalem, but then he just messed with them for fun. And I think he asked Philip, because Philip was the dude making eye contact with him when he looked around. I had a professor like this in college, Dr. Archer, brilliant history professor, great lecturer, but he loved to call on people in the middle of class and ask them questions until they got one wrong, and then he would just make fun of them. It was the worst situation ever. I feel bad for Philip here, because if Jesus asked you a question in public, it just, it never went good for anybody. He always had the answer, and it was always some sort of test, just like Dr. Archer. My friend Eric one time made eye contact in the middle of a lecture, and he got asked, Eric, since the rivers in France were polluted because they dumped all the animal and people poop in it, what did French people drink in the Middle Ages? And he panicked because he'd made eye contact and he's like milk and dr archer cackled and he's like yes they would run straight into the hallway of their apartment building and milk the cow there's a cow on every floor of every apartment instead of you know maybe turning it into wine which would kill the bacteria and drinking that instead great answer eric and like this is philip's moment you can just see it and he looks out at this crowd and he's like trying to do some math he's a linear thinker he's like all right you gotta multiply this like it's like fifteen thousand people and then you carry the two oh. Jesus, we don't even have enough money to feed everybody one bite of food. And you just know when he says that, all the other disciples are looking around like, I bet that's not the right answer. He got it wrong. <laughs> and they're looking down like, don't, don't call on me next. Matthew's like, I got nothing. Peter's going, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Thomas is like, I have an idea, but I doubt it would work. <laughs> it's a pastor joke right there. I'm sorry for it. Pastor jokes might be even worse than dad jokes, but... Yeah, I'm just, sorry. Anyways, when Andrew, he's like, yo, there's a kid with five breads and two fishes. I like Andrew. I relate to him. Anyone else ever like just shout out an idea without really thinking about it first and considering all the options? And then as soon as you say it, you're like, that was not smart. (laughs) That was not, that was a bad one. Now that I'm hearing the words out loud, I wish I wouldn't have said that idea. Can I get a do-over? That's got to be what Andrew's thinking. They got 15,000 people coming at him, and he's like, yeah, I got five loaves of bread and two fish. And then Jesus is like, oh, yeah, 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 that'll do. And John says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, plus women and children. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same thing with the fish. And again, outside of the resurrection, this is probably the most famous miracle Jesus ever performed. And these couple verses right here give us a profound picture of who he is and what that means for your life and mine. Like first things first, John doesn't tell us all the details, but clearly Jesus took this poor kid's lunch. And we know he was a poor kid because the only people that would have been following Jesus out into the wilderness were people who were poor and needy. If they could have afforded it, they would have almost certainly been in Jerusalem. 
celebrating Passover with all the important people. We also know this kid is poor because he had barley bread, and that's what poor people ate. Barley was and has been for centuries the grain of the poor. Even in the 19th century, there was this English insult that in England, barley is a grain for horses, but in Scotland, it's a grain for people. So Jesus takes this poor kid's lunch. I don't think he took it by force. I don't think Andrew was like, yo, that kid has food. Bart, you put him in a headlock. Judas, you bite the ankle. I'll snag his lunchbox. Like, I think Jesus asked him to give the food, but this kid put everything that he had in Jesus' hands. And that's a pretty bold move because as soon as he gave it up, it wasn't his anymore. He lost his lunch. He had absolutely no control any longer over what Jesus was going to do with it. And that haunts me a little bit. Because I think about my life and, and the way that I'm living and all the things that I would be real nervous to give completely to God. All the areas that, that I want just a little bit of control over, that deep down inside I don't want to completely put into Jesus' hands because I'm afraid of what might happen if I do. And I think every single one of us in this room has that stuff. For some of us, it's our stuff. It's our money and our possessions. For others of us, it's our, our hobbies. It's our, our golf or our workouts, whatever habits we have. For others of us, it's our work, our career trajectory, our identity. Maybe it's relationships. It's, it's our marriage or, or the marriage we, we want or wish we had. Or it's our kids, their future and their potential and their sports and everything else. All of us have things in our lives that we want to cling to and we're nervous to give completely to God. And as we think about what those are, it's worth remembering there's a very real temptation to take the good things in our lives and allow them to become God things in our lives. To take the blessings we've been given and elevate them to a position they should not be in and then cling tightly to them because we are worried about what God might do if we gave him complete control. But that's what this kid does. He releases his lunch. And man, I, I think about my life, I think all of us do, and like thinking about releasing some of that stuff feels like we're going to lose our lunch. This kid puts it in Jesus' hands, and then Jesus breaks it, right? That's what, that's what he did. He, he broke it. And I'm sure as his disciples were sitting there, they're thinking, oh my goodness, why are we doing this? I hope no one is watching. Because Jesus takes this little bit of food. He's got thousands of people coming at him. And I was trying to think of an equivalent for this. And the, the best I could think of to explain what the disciples are going through is this, is this donut. Like Mike went to Dunkin', and Jesus sits down, he's like, all right, we're going to pray for the food. Gather around, fellas. He sits down and starts breaking the food. And his disciples are like, how much does he think everyone's going to get? Because they really think in this moment, Jesus is just going to be like, here, Jody, you got that bad. Like, like, how far is this donut going to stretch? It's not going to go very far, Jesus. And the kid's like, Jesus just broke my lunch. But you guys, that was the only way forward. See, Jesus had to take it and break it in order to make it all that it could be. See, it was in the breaking that it was made more, that it was multiplied. It was given a purpose and a function beyond what it could ever have had if it wasn't 
broken. When my daughter was like three or four years old, we were at 4th of July with a bunch of cousins one time, and all the kids had these glow stick wands with like an American flag at the top, and they went outside, and everyone's was working except Emma's, and she came to me, and she said, Daddy, mine doesn't work. I said, oh, I think I can help with that. Can I see it? And reluctantly, she handed it to me, and what's the first thing I did? I cracked it. And my precious little girl barely held back tears as she said, Daddy, you broke it. I said, oh, yeah, I did. But watch what happens when you take it back outside. Because I think our lives are so much like that glow stick. They're so much like the five loaves and two fish. If we cling to them, they will never be, we will never be all we were created to be. It's only in the process of putting them in God's hands that we're able to be more. This is not comfortable at all, but it's true and it's beautiful. Jesus has to take us and break us in order to make us whole. We have to surrender and let him do that. And that's not a one-time thing. That's a daily thing. That's an every single day of our lives coming to him and giving him what we've got so he can take us and break us in a way that allows us to be whole, that allows us to live more full of meaning and purpose and hope and value than we could ever have lived on our own. Because what Jesus will do if we give him our lives is give us back even more life. He'll fill us every breath we take, every heartbeat we experience, every moment of our lives with beauty. And he'll work through us to give that to our world. That's actually what he promises us. Just a few chapters after this miracle in John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly, more fully. And I believe that this miracle that he does out here where he feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children on the hill is his rubber stamp guarantee that he means that. Because we read that everybody sat down and they ate, not just a little bit, but they ate until they were full and they sat down on green grass, which by the way is a cool little detail in this story. There's not a lot of green grass in the desert, but Jesus found some for his people because even the wilderness is a place of provision for God. No matter where we are or what's going on in our lives, Jesus provides. And then after everybody ate their fill, we read that this is what happened. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. That's an easy little bit to kind of ignore when we read this story, and I get it. Leftovers is not a real popular word in our culture. When I get home from work and ask what's for dinner and the answer is leftovers, I got to work real hard to control my face because it's not, it's not to contain the joy. It's like, like, I hate them. Nobody likes leftovers. But you guys realize John spent twice as many verses talking about the leftovers in this passage as he did talking about the miracle. How Jesus made it happen, we don't even know. He doesn't get into that. Jesus took it, he broke it, people ate it. And then John's like, but check out the leftovers. There were like so much leftovers, you guys. And then we like walked around. We put all the leftovers in baskets. We collected them, leftovers. When I was a kid, I never understood that because they didn't even eat the leftovers. Like, then we took them with us. No, they collected the leftovers in baskets and then they sailed away. Like, what are they even doing? Well, check it out. The Greek word that John uses 
doesn't have the negative connotation of leftovers. It actually has this really positive connotation of abundance, of having more than enough, of overflowing, right? John isn't talking about leftovers. He's talking about overflowing, about God's blessings coming into our lives and filling us up so much that they pour out of us all over the people around us. This isn't leftovers, it's running over. And the pathway to experiencing the running overs of God is the uncomfortable step of giving him everything we have and allowing him to break us so that he can multiply us, so that he can make us whole. I know, at least if you're anything like me, it's easy to look in the mirror and feel like, yeah, maybe God could do that with somebody, but he can't do it with me. I I don't have what it takes. Even if I gave God everything I've got, that's not much. And he couldn't work through me to do anything significant. It's easy to look at our lives and feel like we are five barley loaves and two fish. And the problems out there in our world are way too big for that to solve. The mountains we got to climb, the giants out ahead of us are, are not fixable with our five loaves and two fish. And we are 100% right about that. We're totally right. But if we decide that because we can't fix it, Jesus can't fix it, we're wrong. We tend to come to him and be like, I, I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. And Jesus says, just give me what you have. I don't have what it takes. Just give me what you have. I don't have what it takes. What have you got? You might not be able to do much with it, but if you put it in my hands, Watch what I can do. Watch how I can multiply. Because you guys, that's what God does. I think about Moses, one of the great heroes of the Bible. One time he's out in the desert and he was like looking after his sheep and God showed up and he's like, Moses, I've heard my people crying out because they're enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. I need you to go there and set them free. And Moses loses it. He's like, I'm a stutterer. I can't go to Pharaoh. He's the most powerful man in the world. I don't have what it takes. And God looks at him. He's like, well, what do you have in your hand? And Moses is like, Ah, stick. All the shepherds have them. We use it to hit the sheep or something. I don't actually know what shepherds do, but I do know what God says to that. He's like, I got a stick. And God's like, a stick? No way. That's unbelievable. That is, oh, I know all you know how to do with a stick is is hit sheep and stuff. But you know what I can do with a stick? I can make it into a snake that eats other snakes and stuff. I can bring water from a rock. I bet you I can part a whole sea and let people walk across in the middle. Yeah, man, just bring me that stick. Our Jesus' first miracle, we talked about a couple weeks ago, you'd think he would kick off his miracle-doing career with a bang, but he didn't. He's at a wedding, and they run out of wine, and his mom's like, do something. And he's like, all right, well, what do you got? And the servants are like, we got dirty jars and water. And Jesus is like, oh, I can make some wine out of that. Or one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible, she's a hero, Dorcas. Don't laugh at that. That's her name. She's going to be in heaven. You're going to have to explain if you laughed at her name. But Dorcas, she's a lady who saw a problem and brought God what little she had to fix the problem. And the problem was widows didn't have any underwear, all right? So she started knitting underwear for widows. This is a real Bible story, okay? And then she died, and the church freaked out. They're like, go get Peter. And Peter comes like, you got you to bring her back to life, man. And he did. There are not a whole lot of people who get raised to life in the Bible, but this chick did. Because the church was like, we cannot have old 
widows running around naked. There can't be a thing. We got to bring her back. Look, she didn't get brought back to life because she had all the pro- or she had the solution to every problem in the world or every problem in her city, or even every problem in her church. She had the solution to one problem, but she gave everything she had to God, and God multiplied her efforts and multiplied the gifts that he had given her to help heal up a situation that was broken. So my question for you this morning is, what is stopping you from giving all you've got to God? What's keeping you from handing him your loaves and your fish? What's preventing you from giving him your time and your resources and your abilities and your talent and your, like, everything about you that he gave you in the first place. I know that's uncomfortable. I know it's scary to give up control over our lives and our possessions and our things to God because we're not sure what he will do. I I know we don't want to give past the level where it's comfortable for us and we can still buy whatever we want. I know we don't want to serve in places where we're not in control. I know we don't want to be in community if we get asked to be vulnerable. We don't want to go into the wilderness places where we have to trust that God will provide, but maximizing our comfort will always, always minimize our capacity. So will you give God all you've got this morning? Will you give it to him knowing, knowing that he will take it and he, he will break it so that he can make you more, so that he can make you whole, so that he can give you a life running over with meaning and purpose and abundance as he works through you to bless the world. Like if you won't, nothing will change. Nothing. You may be comfortable, but you will miss out on the beauty and the life God wants to give you in this life. But if you will, if we will, as we do, if we'll just bring God what we've got He will provide and he will multiply because that's what he does. He will work through our lives to write a more beautiful story for all of the people we crash into. You guys, Jesus is inviting us this morning to lose our lunch. He's inviting every single one of us to be a part of what he's doing to help make all things new and set all things right. And the only way we can step into that is to take the uncomfortable step of giving him everything. But that's actually his plan working through us. That's his plan to create a better future for our world. So I think we just got to lose our lunch. Will you pray with me? Oh, thank you. Thank you for providing for us no matter where we're at. Thank you for meeting us in the wilderness spaces and giving us everything we need. I pray, Lord, that we would know that we know that we know that at the core of who we are, that you're walking with us even in the discomfort, that you're walking with us even in the places that are scary, that you're walking with us even in the places we don't want to be. God, we ask that you would come and do incredible things in and through us, that you would inspire us to believe so deeply that you are who you promise you are, believe so deeply that you are good, that we take the stuff we've been clinging to, the good stuff that we've made God's stuff, and we just release it. Lord, let us put our entire lives in your hands. We give them to you. We invite you to break us in a way that makes us whole, to work in and through us, not just to breathe life into our moments, but to breathe life into our world. Lord, we come before you and we surrender. We give it all to you and we trust that you're going to do more with our moments and our lives than we ever could. Thank you for being good. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for inviting us in.
to all the things you're doing to make the world more beautiful. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.